This is Living Proof Radio, May 2024. All of our full episodes are available on our Patreon with weekly drops, a Patreon-only radio show, and Living Proof magazine delivered to your house every issue, as well as our entire members-only library backlog. Patreon.com slash York. Ladies and gentlemen, Disco Bryso in the motherfucking house. What up, bro? Yeah. How you doing? <laughs> good, good. Um, I know very little of you other than your Instagram captions. I try to do my homework, and but it was a little bit difficult. But so I'm just gonna start off asking you, where are you from? Uh, I'm born and raised in Seattle, so Seattle's kind of my home base, and uh, it's where all my family is and my history is at. So it's I, I plan on moving around, but Seattle's uh, always gonna be home. You ever lived in New York? I did. I lived in New York like three different times. I moved there when I was 17. Uh, I went to school over the summer. I did a couple of classes at Columbia and uh, got to see like Gladiator in, in the Times Square uh, Ewok Theater, which was cool. Um, and then after that, I went to uh, NYU for a few years. Uh, and then the longest stint I did was most recently... Uh, from about oh nine to the end of two thousand fourteen, and you just was like you were just like New York, Seattle, because of like some graph shit, or for the most part, like I fell in love with New York when I was a kid. You know, I think we all have that like romantic version of you know it being kind of the promised land, even if you're not into graph, if you're into you know movies or music or ballet or you know whatever, finding metal on the sidewalk. New York's the place to be. What neighborhood you lived in when you lived here? When I lived in New York, I lived in, uh, so I lived in Bushwick for a while. Uh, going to NYU, I got to live in dorms. So um, I tried to live all over. I lived in Midtown in this weird, like, converted uh, hotel. Uh, they did, like, housekeeping and gave you free toilet paper and shit. So that was pretty chill. Around what year was that, like, in uh, Bushwick? Uh, in Bushwick, I lived there in... 13 and 14 so how was the neighborhood then was it like becoming um kind of like gentrify like people were um like the the rent was going up and stuff like that or not yet yeah it was already played out for sure i lived in a building called castle braid and castle braid is like uh is kind of the the heart of gentrification to be honest it's it's like there's a rooftop there's a bunch of graph up there they did some legal pieces to like you know bring in the people that are like down with having some multicolor artistic shit on their rooftop. And uh, it, it was like a fun place to live. Don't get me wrong, but it was also like hated by everyone in the neighborhood because it was uh, the first sign of like things changing. Yeah. How was your, how was your upbringing? How was your family situation growing up? I know that on your Instagram, when I lurk on your captions and I, and I read into them, even just the quotes that you, that you take from other authors that you read, it's like a very, it gives off a very like hyper aware, but in almost like a somber, like a, there's, it gives like a somber vibe to it, like a hyper awareness that leads to like a kind of like a, you know what I mean? And, and you talk about in one of your, in one of your uh, captions that you started taking drugs at 13 and it was, you say that, um, you quote this uh, author, I got it right here. Let me, let me pull it up. It's uh, Vincent uh, Felitti, 
and speaking about how there's a link between childhood adversity and substance abuse, uh, which leads me to question, how was your childhood upbringing? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't pleasant, I think. So there's like my childhood upbringing was very uh, dissonant. I kind of grew up in two different worlds. Um, I was fortunate enough to like take those tests when you're like in elementary school. So I tested into the like the genius program essentially where you take all AP classes and shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was very strange because the vast majority of my classmates were uh, upper class white people. And so there was, uh, you know, I felt very much like I was on the outside of that uh, world um, coming from a background that was heavily influenced by gang violence, um, by abuse, by drug use itself, by um, a lot of, I think, you know, the, the negative aspects of society that we want to ignore for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, so those two things really did provide like a, a serious conflict for me. Um, and, you know, I think that no matter how hard I wanted to like be like my classmates and the people I, I grew up around, you know, I, I came from a, a much different uh, neighborhood in the city and uh, my friends and family were doing a lot different, different things than, than theirs were. So. Mm-hmm. You talk about how, <laughs> yeah. You talk about how like your cousins, I think it was were in uh, Chinese gangs and stuff like that. Yeah, so, you know, the, it's it's interesting. As I got older and I think became more of an adult um, and I had an interest in, like, learning my family history, you really don't have that when you're, you know, a teenager or preteen. So I didn't really understand, like, the depth of, you know, the involvement of my family in uh, not just, like, street gangs, but just, like, to put it broadly, like, organized crime in the sense um (laughs) excuse me and i don't want you know the audience or people in general to take that the wrong way as like i think that's a cool thing or it's glorified in any way um like my grandpa was full traditional chinese like fresh off the boat Mm -hmm. um he was involved in tongs which are like Mm -hmm. actually beneficial groups now um, but back then they were designed similar to like the Italian mafia in that they were uh, meant to protect other Chinese citizens that were, you know, unfairly targeted by the police. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they did things like gambling and, you know, uh, took care of new immigrants and offered them jobs and things like that. Um, but they were also, you know, involved in, robberies and murders and you know a lot of things that are historically well known in at least Seattle Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that that type of experience kind of trickled down to you know my dad generation and then my generation Um, and I think honestly it's emblematic of like being like neglected like you don't have parents around to tell you what to do Um, you generally like fall into what everyone else is doing mm-hmm. how did like the, um, the use of drugs start like were you um were you around a group of people that were doing that or you kind of found that on your own um you know i think the use of drugs started from like you know from that conflict i mentioned earlier like 
going to classes that were, you know, geared towards people that were hyper intelligent or tested well, you know, put me on the outside of like my cousins and friends and people that were like heavily involved in gang activity. Um, so I think that the drug use started as a means to like try to not be rejected by them. Like, hey, I know you guys think I'm smart and everything, but I can also get down and use drugs just as much as you can. Uh, so I think that that's what it was about, was like really just trying to find a place to be like accepted. Yeah. But you said uh, you started writing graffiti at 14 years old. Do you think that was like a different outlet or how did you feel about that? How did that even come about? Yeah, graffiti was something that also came about because of the influences of like the cousins and people that I looked up to, you know, the, the gangs that they were involved in were also heavily involved in like, you know, territorial marking and everyone had like a, an alias and they would, you know, practice their like, you know, I think like the Filipino gangs would not be comfortable calling it like Cholo style writing, but realistically there's a lot of similarities between the two so that's that was my first outlet to graffiti was like gang tags and learning how to cross out certain letters do letters backwards uh, make things extra jagged um, and so that was like again my attempt to like try to be included in that world and you know it was something that I could get away with like in the confines of like you know my white family household uh, because they weren't exactly aware of what I was doing. So it was it was pretty much like the drugs and the graffiti was just a way for you to, like you said, just be part of part of that other side of your family that you felt like alienated from or that you didn't necessarily fit in with. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. I think. When you, um, yeah, guys, sorry. When you were, it's all good. When you were growing up, you were around like the tongs and shit. Would you see? Would they just like you know? When I picture tongs, I picture like a dark room with everyone gambling and like cigars and whatever were you like what were some of the memories that you have from that time period you know that's a thing that not a lot of people go through i have no experience with like you know tongs or i don't know anyone who has experiences with that and it's a very unique situation yeah so the i think the depth of my knowledge with like the tongs in terms of like my grandpa's involvement like wasn't something that was conscious until i got older and i could ask questions like to my dad for instance about like will tell me more about like what grandpa was involved in, you know? And I think that, you know, it was a time, I don't think anyone was trying to like intentionally prevent us from knowing that. I think like when you're 10 years old, you don't know what the fuck a tong is. You know what I mean? You don't know what any kind of like organized crime is really even unless you're watching movies. So um, there was definitely a lot of like, mahjong involvement like people would come over to the house and like play mahjong in the back room but you don't really make the connection because there's not a lot of money changing hands you know what i mean um it's it's a lot like they have had the benefit of doing what they do for hundreds of years mm -hmm. that even if there was a raid right like the cops what would they do there's no like money on the table there's no like you know uh, immediate evidence of the law being broken mm -hmm. so my childhood awareness of that was pretty limited other than um i had like some like uh i don't know periphery knowledge of some major like 
mass murders that happened in Seattle. And, you know, they like there would be whispers about like, oh, grandpa knew this or grandpa was there or, you know what I mean? Um, so those things I did know about. And as I got older, I think my dad was more comfortable, like bringing me in, more into that world of like, well, these are the places that they hung out at. And when we would go there, there would still be very active, like old dudes with big gold chains, gambling and exchange. They'd go outside and exchange money. And, you know, it was also one of those things where like the cops were aware that these things are happening at these locations. And so there clearly was like, you know, a, there's like an ecosystem, you know, you have uh, certain activities that are like permissible by the police, I think in large part, either because there has been a relationship that's been established mm -hmm. or that they know that these places are very integral to immigrant communities and their, you know, ability to survive in, in this one. It really makes you wonder, um, you know, with the whole, the creation of laws and our societal structure and all that really if you really understand the law or any kind of structure that's meant to hold you in a certain kind of in a certain kind of space whether it be like your physical body or just your actions and what you think if you really understand it really well and you act accordingly you can go around those things and face like as long as you keep a level head i feel like you could really face minimal consequence as opposed to someone who does maybe the same illegal act as you but doesn't understand how the game works as well. And I think that's something that uh, uh, the Asian gangs are notoriously known for is um, uh, like subtle, subtle and subtle and silent. So in your mind, everything's docile in the neighborhood, but it's because they're portraying it that way. I myself, I live in a um, like predominantly completely uh, like Asian neighborhood. And I mean, I live here, so I see it, but you know, it's like if you were to just drive through, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know. And I was also wondering, um, you know, you, you, that's, I feel like that's like a family thing. They, they take you in because you're blood and I'm sure there's people who aren't family who are in it, but they never attempted to get you to be part of it or how did that work? Well, you know, I think that I, I didn't understand like my place in the family. Right. And, you know, even now it's, it's difficult just because of like some of the inter family like sibling rivalry stuff that's going on but um you know for the most part i think also people outside of like asian culture might not understand but i was the firstborn child of firstborn son of that of our generation and i'm the only uh son that can carry on the family name mm -hmm. so that is like you know that's like a, a word from god in their culture where you know, if you are the firstborn son, you are responsible for a lot. And so I know that there has been a lot of effort to uh, protect me from certain things uh, just because, you know, that what I do reflects upon the family. And um, I think that that's something that I took for granted or just wasn't aware of, you know, when I was younger. So with your involvement of drugs and... Um you know, graph, and I'm assuming that because of that, you've had legal consequences along the line, or at least just, you know, something not so positive. How did your family react to that? Or was it, how, how was that? You know, they were pretty tolerant. I think that um, 
you know, for the most part, like the generation underneath my grandpa, for instance, like my, my dad and my aunt and my uncle, um, have done a good job of like communicating to the older generation that, you know, some of the things that we experience, like smoking weed, for instance, are like culturally acceptable in America. And so there is a, a very like painful process of like assimilating some of the, you know, fresh off the boat immigrants from China that came here in a time when it was heavily racist and, you know what I mean? Things have changed considerably um, and it's tough for them to, I think, become used to those changes because they are very insulated in their community of other like solely Chinese speakers and mm. stuff like that. So um, I guess for the most part, like my Chinese family was tolerant and didn't give me such a hard time. And my white family, because, you know, on that side of the lineage, there's been heavy drug use and alcoholism. Uh, it wasn't, wasn't much of a surprise to them either. Yeah. It's funny. Um, I can really relate to what you're saying and feeling like you have two parts of your family and then you have two parts that like you kind of want to live up to both of them, but it's difficult if they're pretty much the opposite. Not necessarily because of my family, but I'm uh, half Chinese and half Ecuadorian. Maybe not half, but like whatever you want to call it. My my dad's side is from is from China, Hong Kong, and my mom's side is from is from Ecuador. And um, on my dad's side, everybody is um, a physician, pretty much everybody. And that's what you just have to be. And this is like the path that's for you. And there's no question of whether you can or can't. It's just like you will, and that's it. And that you know, I was I'm the only one who grew up in America. All the rest of them grew up outside of the country, so they were able to keep that. Um, <laughs> They were able to keep that mindset over. They were able to keep that mindset. And it's just different growing up over there. So, like, for me, growing up in America, I really got into, like, graph. I got into going to hardcore punk shows. I got into, like, I was, um, I'm 25. And when I was, like, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, it was just, you know, just, like, kind of more unhinged. And I'm not, I wasn't, like, some big gangster or anything like that. But I definitely had a lot of anger inside of me, a lot of like violent tendencies and would just snap on a whim about anything and be willing to like maybe do something insane just for the sake of proving myself uh, to the others around me who were in those subcultures. And it was hard for me because, you know, I have this side of my family where it's like, you have to be a good student, you have to be uh, this and you have to be that. But like inside of me, I have other interests and it was just kind of like relatable in like a strange way, you understand? I was going to say like, I think that's very common in traditional families because like I come from the same thing. Like my family is from like Russia and they don't, they, you know, they come to America and they, they want like a certain um, like standard that their son should live by like certain accomplishments. Otherwise like pretty much is a failure in a way. So I feel like when you have that much pressure on you and you see past that, like you don't want to do that. I feel like the, um, the youth becomes in a way like rebellious, you know, they start doing, things they become a part of subcultures they tend to think a certain way which is pretty common but it definitely helps with um i think like coping with that like black sheep mentality because you realize that there's a whole community out there that is like-minded and yeah and just it's crazy like what um what situations you can get into though by following that like separate path of you know not going to college not you know, getting degrees, this and that. And, um, yeah. 
I wanted to ask you about the Seattle graph scene. Is it true that if you get arrested there, you get, you guys like you get time? Cause in New York, I know people have been arrested for it a million and one times. And every time it's just, Oh, I don't know what that says. And then goodbye. There's no consequence. So it really depends. I think like, you know, for instance, if you were to be arrested for graph now, uh, they would be a lot more lenient. There have definitely been periods like through the history of Seattle graph where they have taken it a lot more seriously. I think particularly like when uh, Amazon started to move in and the city itself wanted to present an atmosphere of cleanliness and safety uh, similar to New York. You know, I think that every city like reaches a point where they're like, all right, enough is enough. It's time for us to take this seriously. Um, not just graph, but like in terms of like how we present ourselves to the world. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm sure that there are some people that want to propagate that myth. It's not the legal standard right now. Um, but if people, you know, I think there's a, an incentive to people that like write graph regularly in Seattle to like try to portray it as like, you know, oh, if I get caught catching a tag, then it's over for me. And look at how many tags I can do, even in spite of the risks that I'm engaging in. You know what I mean? So uh, to answer your question, no, not that I'm aware of. I'm fairly aware of the legal structure currently, but there may be some people out there that disagree with me. How would you say the difference is between the graph scene in New York, the graph scene in Seattle? I've never been to Seattle. It's somewhere where I really wanted to visit for a while, but. So like right now things are like very active. And I think again, a lot of that has to do with like, we had some pretty serious BLM protests. A lot of damage got done then. Uh, We've had several protests thereafter in general, I think, the cops are not taking graffiti crime super seriously because of COVID. Um, and because of all of the like emphasis on like defunding the police and the mayor actually cutting the police budget, uh, like 911 response times are absurd. So you can get over, somebody can call 911 and the cops aren't going to show up for 15, 20 minutes maybe. So as long as you can manage like the stress and like talking to that one hero, then you can really do pretty much whatever you want. I'm not, I'm not sure if you'd have an answer to this question, but I just, it just hit me while you were talking that, you know, the BTM crew is known all throughout the world. I've been to China. I've seen them there. I've been to South America. I've seen them there. You know, I'm in New York. I see them here. It's like wherever I go, I go through middle America driving throughout the country. I see them there. Is the Seattle Police Department aware that this crew originate that's around known around the world, you know, is online everything? Are they aware that they originate from Seattle? I don't think so. Um, to be quite honest, I think that the New York Police Department is probably far more aware of BTM, its members, and the you know extent of the things that they've done there. Mm-hmm. Um, in Seattle, we have had uh, a graph task force that's consisted of a single detective for a long time. Uh, for a long time, there's been no detective. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you're dealing with graph in terms of just like, you know, uh, beat cops, they're really just looking at it as a single incident. Uh, I'm going to cite you from Lessis Mischief and we're going to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, I, I don't think that they are fully aware of all of those things. I think maybe also because it started here, there's a, a you know, a related crew called 3A that also started here. You know, I think that maybe there's um, been so much of that that they just portray them as like, you know, some some kids that are just like out there wreaking havoc temporarily. I know you talk about how, um, like I said before, the typographic va- uh, typographic vandalism is a compulsive behavior used to cope with the adverse experiences you feel in in younger life. And then also, like that author says, and you agree with the link between childhood adversity and substance abuse. So it's like in in some sort of, from some lens, it's like one in the same. And you posted this stat and it says... Um, that there's 142 plus opioid related deaths daily in the United States. This number is equivalent of those lost on 9-11 every three weeks. Drug overdose is the leading cause of accidental death in the U.S. And let me just add that I'm pretty sure accidental death is number three leading cause of death worldwide. Um, greater than deaths from guns or auto accidents with opioids accounting for more than half of that number. Four in five heroin users began by misusing prescription painkillers, which is that's crazy. Um, and a large amount of available heroin is adulterated with fentanyl. The combination is a leading cause of overdose, overdose deaths. Nationally, the majority who use illicit narcotics began with prescription. 75 to 80% of heroin users are hooked initially on prescription painkillers. Oh, uh, I'm somebody who has never, I've never taken any type of drug in my whole life. Like, like I said, I grew up in the hardcore scene. And at a young age, I was like part of this, like, you know, the straight edge movement. I grew up in Massachusetts and like Boston hardcore straight edge is like known throughout the hardcore scene. It's like, you know, you don't take drugs, whatever, whatever. So it's, it's hard for me to understand someone like you who has started taking drugs at 13 or like even some of my friends not in the hardcore scene who, who I see like what they've done over the years and like what's happened. And I know you've lost family and friends due to drugs. And I just wanted to ask you, I know you've been off uh, you've been sober for six years or more, whatever it was. And how was your process of addiction? And how did you go? When did you realize, oh, I'm actually addicted as opposed to I'm just using this? And how did you go about getting clean? What was the struggles you faced to do so? Um, that's a long question. And, you know, forgive, forgive me if I answer it in length. But I I think that for me personally... Um, one of the things that I learned that was most helpful was the concept of addiction. I mean, you know, in mental health or whatever, there's everybody wants to make everything a spectrum, right? But addiction itself has become um, accepted in most like clinical aspects or environments as being a spectrum. So, you know, you can start out with addiction on the far end of the spectrum. You can start out with casual recreational use on the other side of the spectrum. Um, in between there is harmful use. So that was very helpful for me in terms of understanding that, like, you know, the other quote, the Felitti quote is addiction is not a disease. You know, it's not something that's caused by an imbalance in your brain. And I think that's huge for a lot of, you know, active addicts out there. Uh, in terms of understanding, like, I can be a little bit compassionate with myself, and all hope is not lost, like, maybe the antidote to addiction is not 
full-on sobriety, maybe it's like just getting to a place where I can use recreationally or casually. Uh, maybe it's a place where I'm using every other day, which still might be harmful because it's expensive, but it's not addiction, you know? So for me, I think I recognized and struggle even now with like identifying myself as an addict because going to plenty of AA and NA meetings, like it still feels uncomfortable for me to say that I'm an addict. Um, but at the same time, I would say that that moment of realization came when um, I was stealing prescription medication from uh, from customers at the place that I worked. Mm-hmm. And that took a very serious turn uh, because I was taking any kind of medication that was left available for me to take. Uh, and it culminated in stealing some controlled substances from a um, trying to use <laughs> like the right words that don't implicate me in any way um, from a political figure. Um, and that was something that not only made me incredibly afraid of like the ramifications because there were secret service there, um, but also it made me aware that like this level of risk for, you know what I mean? A handful of benzos is really not worth it. Um, you know, I was also suffering, like I had extreme dehydration. I like couldn't function. Like if I wasn't using and I had a pretty, uh, high stress job. So it was very aware to me and to my coworkers that something was up. Um, so that was kind of just a wake up call. Um, I like took some time off work. I went to a doctor that was a part of the pilot program for Suboxone in New York. Um, and I think that day or the next day, uh, I was given a prescription for, uh, 32 milligrams of Suboxone. Um, which is like, you know, it's a huge amount of opiates even like for anyone to be using. And so in my eyes, really all that did was like then actually make me an addict because I I really, really could not function, um, you know, without, without opiates in my system. And I was going to talk about how this system is set up in a way where if someone does use that substance and is found with it, they throw them in prison, which in my opinion is ridiculous because instead of like going to the root of the problem and understanding where this person's coming from and why they're taking this, they just decide to throw them in a, in a cage cell that, which doesn't solve anything. And you have a, in one of your pictures, you wrote about prison and you talk about how the small number of those men and women in the hell of the prison system, they, um, that survive it, they, um, they try to hold on to their humanity, what's left of it, you know what I mean? Because a lot of people that can go into the prison system with um, a drug addiction, prison even makes it worse, you know what I mean? They have to deal with other things besides their drug addiction. So like by the time they're coming out of that, if they make it out, they're a completely different person and nothing was cured and nothing was saved. I know a lot of people that come out of prison and they're not, they're not much better. They literally commit more crimes, if anything, 
and they want to go back because that's what they're used to. So I think the system is completely all messed up. Have you ever had like situations where um, you got caught up with the law in terms of like acquiring drugs or like being a part of that whole scenario? Um, so I've never gotten caught up acquiring drugs, but my last uh, arrest in New York, um, I was with a writer who knows who he is and he, you know, really saved my ass, honestly, but he's also the, <laughs> he's also the one that allowed me to, uh, acquire more drugs. So, um, we were together and I was planning on racking some, uh, sunglasses and the sunglasses I was going to rack had a, a pretty like thick plastic security tag that I intended to cut off before I left the store. So since I didn't have any like scissors with me or any knife, um, I then went to another store to try to acquire some scissors. And because I was already high out of my mind, um, I was not completely aware that there was loss prevention in this store that was like, you know, it, it was a store that shouldn't have had loss prevention. Uh, so anyways, I got bagged for trying to steal that pair of scissors. And I had uh, some hydromorphone, uh, which is essentially morphine, in, uh, in my junk. And, you know, the cops never found it. Um, so going through booking and basically detoxing in a holding cell, um, and then it just, like, honestly explaining the situation to uh, the arresting officers resulted, I think, in me uh, being released from the precinct rather than having to go through central booking. Mm -hmm. So I think that like that incident, and there have been other incidents where I've like had to detox in, you know, in like after being booked uh, in a cell with 35 other dudes um, was very, very painful. Um, I think that for people that have more serious problems and go through like active withdrawal in prison, um, like it, it hurts me to my core as like somebody who uh, can feel how painful that experience is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but to speak to your point, it is absolutely broken. And I think the hard thing is that change is still a long ways away. Mm -hmm. So change is still a long way away, partly because people just the average, the average citizen, probably even including myself, don't really understand addiction because they haven't gone through it. Uh, they haven't gone through it. So if you haven't gone through something, you can't understand it to the scope of someone who has and the people making the laws and the majority of the people voting don't understand what don't fully understand what it is they're voting on or what laws it is, what the laws they're passing, what implications those laws have. And the only ones who do fully understand it, meaning the ones who have gone through it, have the least voice because in the eyes of society, what are you, an addict? You're like, how are you going to vote for the laws passed on this country? That's what people are going to say and think. And it makes me wonder too, with like the majority of people who getting addicted to drugs they start with the prescriptions what like how is this 
what is this? This is an insanity. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> the prescriptions are legal. So in essence, you're making it legal to make most people. And you're also making it not only legal, but profitable to make people eventually addicted to drugs, which you then incarcerate them for. I'll give you a couple examples. Like one is my biological dad. So he um, suffers from chronic pain. And, you know, these days it would be unheard of to prescribe someone with chronic pain, long-term oxy. Um, but he was prescribed long-term oxy for over 20 years. And the doctor also was prescribing him with Xanax, which is like the number one equation for overdose, respiratory failure, you die in your sleep. So, you know, and my dad's like, at this point, he's it's in pat, over his mid-60s. Um, so if that, if you were still on both those medications, the likelihood of some adverse event like that occurring is, it's huge. Um, so, you know, that's just one thing. Thankfully he's been able to get off of both of those medications. So his, you know, prognosis is much better, but at the same time, it, you know, putting someone in that situation of then having to like. Uh, detox off of those medications on their own is is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the other example I would give is like when I was on Suboxone, which I was on Suboxone for three years, um, you know, they start with a, an absurd dose, which they don't give people 32 milligrams of Suboxone anymore because it is way too much. Um, and so when I decided that I was going to stop taking Suboxone, you know, the doctor that was prescribing it to me was a psychiatrist that works on the Upper West Side. He uh, got his PhD from Columbia. He's like on boards and shit. So, you know, top of the line psychiatrist was charging three fifty an hour. Uh, he gave me absolutely zero information on what to expect when coming off of Suboxone. So he didn't provide any information about like post-acute withdrawals, which is a major thing for people that want to stop taking opiates. Um, He didn't give me any information about acute withdrawals or like, you know, these are the things that you might expect. And so what I found is like when I decided to like start cutting my dose down is that I had cravings for other substances, whether that be, uh, Adderall or benzos or, you know, literally any substance I could get my hands on that wasn't an opiate. And the fact of the matter is those things don't work, obviously. Uh, so you might end up with, you know, some other auxiliary or, you know, incidental problem as a result of just trying to manage the side effects of getting off of your medication responsibly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And oh, I was going to say how this, not, this can happen to anybody because I know several cases where someone might have a successful business, successful businessman, like um, students high, but let's say they get into a car accident, like a serious car accident, and then they end up getting um, hooked on a certain medication and they need more and more, like more painkillers, this and that. And when they're released from the hospital, they keep taking that and that transfers on to different drugs and like you were saying about the psychiatric um doctor prescribing you drugs i actually know i worked with um a friend i have and he actually just got out of a relationship because of that because his girlfriend went to therapy for something minor and as time went on before you know it she has 
she has to take 10 pills a day and she's a completely different person. And because of that, they're not together. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's, it's crazy how they don't tell you the, the real deal in a way they almost don't care because at the end of the day, they're looking out for their own interests and they don't care what you do at the end of the day. They just want to get paid. And it's the sad truth. It's like the shallowness of the society. They're not really taking care of the people and they're supposed to, you know, like therapy is supposed to be therapeutic, but in a way it's almost, I hate to say it. I mean, it's different for everybody. It might, you know, it definitely saves people's lives, but it, I think in my opinion has ruined people's lives in terms of the medicine they prescribe, you know? Yeah. I think we also have, we all have like a fear of, of being labeled an addict. Right. And unfortunately a lot of the medication that is out there that will be prescribed to people feels good. You know what I mean? And so if it feels good and then all of a sudden it stops feeling good because you've hit a tolerance, uh, you're hesitant to report that to your doctor because you don't want your doctor to think, oh, I'm just trying to get more of this medication that feels good. So there are so many different like, you know, gates set up that like prevent us from really getting the actual help that we need. Um, You know, that story I'm sure you know is like very common and it's unfortunate and sad when you see it happen in real time to somebody. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a fundamental problem and the fundamental problem is regardless of what you have, um, the, the system or just like the points that you're supposed to cover is like, you have a problem. I give you this pill. I give you this medicine. I don't tell you how it works. I don't tell you actually what's in it. I briefly as quick as humanly possible, go over the side effects and then you take it and then that's the end of the story. And there's no one actually checking, even for something as simple as Advil, there's no one actually checking. Are you taking it to the prescribed dose? Are you taking it to the day you're supposed to take it so that you don't develop um, like a bacteria that isn't killed off by these, by these medicines? Are you taking, there's no, there's no, uh, in anything, even, even in, from the smallest medicine to ones like Prozac, there's no real, like as deep as it should be uh, regulation of the people who are taking this because uh, I'm sure that if used as intended and it's probably helped some people, it hasn't just destroyed everybody's life. I'm sure some of these things that if they really use them, how, but there's the problem is they're so easy to, to, to abuse. And the problem is that they're not explained, but, um, on a more positive note, I think that people like you uh, who use your Instagram to speak on these topics and uh, it, it, it sheds light on these things. And that's what we need to eventually have people who could never fully understand it, such as myself, eventually have more people not fully grasp it. Because like I said, you can't unless you've been through it, but you can have someone somewhat of an idea. So when you quote unquote vote on these, on these rules or when you even encounter an addict yourself, you treat them you could do something positive about it as opposed to just being like a uh, sherm head and then, you know, walk away. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think just that, that sense of compassion um, might, at, you know, even just like uh, another couple of seconds before you make that judgment does make a difference, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you can take that three seconds to 10 seconds and that 10 seconds, you might have another thought, um, that helps you to appreciate who that person is as a human rather than just, you know, react to your first impression, which of course is like 
the basis of mindfulness. So like, you know, yeah, everybody should be practicing mindfulness. Everyone just start doing it now. But, you know, I think that that is very helpful in getting to that place. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, um, some of the, I lost what I was going to say. Sometimes there's like so many different points that I want to, no, I remember. So one of the things I wanted to, to address is that, you know, there's a reason why I chose my Instagram to do these things. Like, you know, there's, uh, I'm not trying to brag at all, but like there was a moment in like 2017 where someone flagged my Instagram, had almost 30,000 followers, and then I was locked out and I had to start all over again at the end of 2018. Um, so my intent was to use a larger audience, but I'm, I'm glad now to have the audience that I, I do because I know that they are a lot more um, thoughtful and considerate uh, because the old audience was very dismissive and it was like very New York graphic focused. Um, but the point is, is that those two groups really do intersect a lot more heavily than we want to acknowledge. And so, you know, I, I think of it as like a Trojan horse, like everybody wants to see the graphics, like to be, you know, completely honest, like if you wanted to find graphics from the time that I was in New York, like nobody was taking better graphics in 2014, 2013, because I was out there doing it every day, 10 hours a day. So the stuff that you see is like, half a percent of the stuff that I have on my hard drive, you know what I mean? Um, and so I think that that is, that, that was my goal. It's like, yeah, you want this, but what I want is for people to be aware of what's behind this picture. Yeah. And what's behind this picture is, yeah, you know, addict might be not, a, not, might not be shooting heroin in his arm every single day. And we know that's probably true because of, his abilities but you know what i mean i think that there are a lot of other writers that do have substance use problems and unless someone in their community someone that they can relate to is willing to present that message which in my experience having been a very harmful user of substances no one was telling me that no one was presenting me with that information that might have been useful and helped me to reconsider what it was that I was doing. How did you end up becoming homeless? Uh, well, so that there, I'll, I'll give you a shorter version. So I came back from New York, uh, basically like with nothing. Uh, my main goal was to like get, a, I had like a week left of the Suboxone. So I was like, really trying to commit to getting clean. Um, so I moved in with my mom and lived at home uh, in the room that my stepdad died in, which is really tragic, um, but that, that was my life. And so I wanted to get out of there as much as possible. Um, I like got a job, oddly enough, working in the cannabis industry um, you know, and I was making really good progress on getting there. Uh, and in a 
visit to my dad, uh, I recognized that my dad was suffering from not only dementia, but he was also uh, trying to be forced out of his home by uh, his sister, my aunt. Uh, my aunt called me and she tried to bribe me um, with like some money, some like uh, assets once my grandma passed away in exchange for putting my dad into assisted living. So I recognized that something was up. Uh, it turns out she was trying to sell the house. But at the end of the day, really what happened was I saw some shit. And I recognized how much help that my dad needed to get out of his, uh, you know, predicament of several different kinds. And so I started trying to engage my sisters and my mom in helping him. Uh, they were like very resistant to that. They, you know, said that he was just eccentric. And so I started to like send them pictures of like the, you know, collection of bags that he had and like, you know, his like, hundreds of empty cans of cat food and like you know he started to steal and so anyways um i basically was like trying to get them to help me to deal with this uh i got in a lot of arguments with my mom she eventually started to like threaten to call the cops um eventually she did call the cops the cops had no grounds to take the following actions but they did anyways they drug all of my belongings, this is like at 12, 30, 1 o'clock at night, um, out onto the sidewalk, and they just left them there. Um, a side note, I ended up filing a complaint against the officers. Um, it ended up being included in a complaint that was filed with the Department of Justice. So, like, my experience with police harassment and discrimination runs deep. Um, so that was my experience with becoming homeless. Uh, and uh, it really sucked. <laughs> how, how long did that last for? Um, so it lasted probably about six months. The, the upside was that my dad, my dad lives in like what's called a, an attached dwelling unit or he did anyways. And it was like, I don't know, 350 square feet. Um, so I could like crash there, but there was like cat pee everywhere. And it was like better for me to live in my car. Um, so once it got really cold, I would go and crash with him. Um, but for the most part, it was like car or dad's house, which is just barely a step above the street. How did you get into flipping books? And well, before that, actually, how did you get into reading and reading for hours and hours and hours on end and self-guided learning? Well, I mean, one of the things I don't talk a lot about on Instagram, but I have mentioned it a few times, is that I was recently diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum, which I knew, I think, unconsciously for a very long time, just strictly because I can, like, obsess about graffiti for... 25 years almost you know what I mean to a level that most writers don't even you know like care about it um and so I recognized like maybe four or five years ago that uh I can channel that obsession into other topics which is kind of a unique like 
aspect of being on the spectrum for some people. Most people are like, my obsession is train schedules and that's all I can do. Um, and so my obsession was graffiti, but I recognize that that's not necessarily a profitable obsession. I'm not going to use that to make any money. Uh, it's not going to help me, you know, develop a better way of life for myself. So I worked really hard to learn how to channel that into other interests. Um, you know, and I channeled that into books because books were really interesting to me and I learned a lot from them. Uh, and then at that point, you know, the transition into flipping them became second nature. Now, but before we talk about flipping them and uh, he wants to say something, if you don't mind, you don't have to. Um, I won't feel disrespected at all. Um, can I see your like book section? Yeah. <laughs> um, so... This is like one of the bookshelves. This is the this is the fifteen K collection. No, no, no. This is all just books for sale. Okay. And then this is another one of the bookshelves. And and you, I'm assuming you've read all of these. These are all for sale. Um, I've I've not read all of them. This is and another one. <laughs> this is another one uh and then i've got you know stacks of rubbermaid bins around uh this is not well organized but this is like this is the majority of like the personal valuable uh top secret ones before you came to the realization about books were you did you read before or how did that come about yeah, I did read before. I, you know, it's interesting when I was like, I think really into graph documentation and took that as if it was my full-time job because I, I, living in New York, I think I really, uh, I had this maybe naive belief that there would be some way for me to commodify my, my work in the streets and taking pictures. Um, uh, so I did read, but it was interesting just because I didn't read very much at all while I was doing that. I think honestly, I didn't have the attention span because graph is like, go, go, go. There's always new graffiti. Um, and so, you know, I think that part of like my drive to read had to do with a drive to, you know, reclaim my attention span. And how did, how did you possibly get into flipping them? Because, you know, I know flipping sneakers exists, flipping Supreme exists, flipping uh, whatever, whatever, even like jujitsu geese, you can flip those. But I've never heard of someone flipping books. I didn't know that was a thing. And how did you become aware of this and then get the hang of doing it to make a profitable business off of it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really like if, if I could come up with like a, a secret superpower that would, my secret superpower would be the skill of observation and learning how to, you know, do something just by watching it. So um, there were two parts of your question though. What was the, what was the first one? Um, so I just wondered how you got to flipping books. How'd you find out about that? Because, you know, I, I never, I've never, I've never heard of anybody who does that. I didn't even know there was a, right, right. a decent amount. I didn't even know there was a scene of flipping books. Okay. So the first part is, it a lot of it is like on the low people don't really want 
to like, I think, talk about it a lot because specifically they don't want a whole bunch of people doing it because then obviously, you know, there would be a lot less out there for us to flip. But um, so how I got into it is uh, I would just go to thrift stores and I was really interested in reading. Uh, so I would spend a lot of time just looking through the racks of books just out of interest. Um, every once in a while, like really very rarely, I'd see some dude come through and he'd have like, it wasn't always like, there were like two dudes in the city that I would see every once in a while. And they would have like the attachment, like barcode scanner. And they'd have like their own special, like old school PDA. But you know what I mean? Like it was like a Palm Pilot, but it was like some newer version of the Palm Pilot. Um, and they would just scan every single book with the barcode. Uh, you know, and then that would pull up the information on their PDA of like, this is the average selling price of this book. Um, <laughs> and then, and then you would then obviously do your own calculations like, well, $2 at the store, it's going to cost me three fifty to ship it. And you could obviously input these things into your, you know, your security, your software platform. And then they, they would really just dumb it down to the point where they would just scan the barcode, their costs would already be input, and then they would just get like a yes or no, you know what I mean? Um, so that's how I encountered uh, book flipping itself. I talked to one of the dudes and he would like, he gave me like this really complicated answer, of course, like, well, first you got to get one of these PDA devices and a barcode scanner, and then you got to sign up for the software um but like everything i found a lot cheaper way of doing it just by uh you can download the amazon seller app anyone out there that wants to try this Same it less. can be installed on any ios or android phone um and as long as you sign up for an amazon seller account which you can do for free uh you can also have access to the only tool that i use so um, yeah, it's just like with Instagram, the more you use it, the more skilled you will become at, you know, learning its ins and outs and like you can make good money if you know what you're doing. But like, I don't want you to tell like people your secrets, but in terms of the price ranges, how does it like, what is it? Um, what does it matter? Like the, the age of the book, the author, the information in the book, like, how does that work? Like, how do they price these books? Well, I mean, you kind of have to like reverse engineer your consumer in a way, you know what I mean? Like, um, I think a lot, when I first started, I tried to think about like what type of people would buy a $200 book, right? Like what type of subjects would... I'll wait until someone puts it on a PDF and then that's it. You know, like $200, what? It's crazy. Right. And so you're thinking like they're, they're going to be older than you are, right? They're going to be, they're going to probably be the type of person that owns a house because they have enough space to display their books. They're going to be somebody, they're going to be an academic. They're going to be a teacher. Uh, they're going to be a 20 something trust fund kid that has an obsession with tarot. You know what I mean? There, there's like all, they're going to be like somebody who is trapping and they really, really want a first edition Martha Cooper subway art. Like, you know what I mean? There's 
uh, there are all sorts of people that like want things and you'd be amazed at how many people are willing to spend $200 on a book. So, um, yeah, in terms of like, how do you find those? I, again, like I use the contrarian perspective in that I see what other people are buying and most people are buying like brand new best-selling books, like even book flippers because they don't want to hold on to the book for very long. They want to spend a couple bucks and then sell it in two or three days. But if you take the opposite approach of like, I'm going to look for obscure stuff that I know is in demand because it's been in demand for 50 years. Um, you know, those books are not going to be reprinted. They're books that are going to retain their value, if not go up in value. Um, you know, it's like, it's like vinyl. Like, you know, if you find yeah. some old vinyl, that's not going to be reissued. You better hang on to that because 10 years from now, there's going to be less copies out there of it than there are now. I think that's funny because uh, we recently, not recently, like three months ago, we talked to Matt Roberts of, uh, he runs a, in, a vintage sponsor, which is just like an account that resells vintage clothes. And um, I think it's funny because most true vintage shops, vintage shops, um, they, they have a book section and we don't even know that just like right over there. These are people who are trying to hustle things right in the other section. There's a whole, there's a whole gold mine that nobody, very, very few people are aware of, including right. myself. And that's why I'm like kind of hesitant to talk about it because I even know there are some people in Seattle um, that, that hustle the vintage teas. Like they make good money on it and I don't want, I don't want to like see them now, like in the book section trying to like, you know what I mean? Encroach on my territory and I let you have all the vintage teas because I, you know what I mean? But yeah. I think ultimately, like, look, the thing that I love about books is you have to have a solid gold attention span. I can guarantee you none of those kids doing yeah. vintage teas, looking yeah. for sneakers, mm. is going to be able to go through 200 books, let alone 3,000 books mm. in an hour and a half. You know what I mean? So... It's a matter of, I think, yeah, this sucks, but I had faith that I was developing a skill the same way, like the first time I put a picture on Instagram, I was like, yeah, this sucks. But if I keep doing this, I'm going to get better at it. That's how practice works. You know yeah. what I mean? So it, it's, it's a skill. Yeah. I guess it's just like, just like anything. It's like the continuous devotion to a certain field will eventually lead to some sort of proficiency. I, absolutely. And I think really the number one lesson that I have learned is that it's good to feel like you're not doing the right thing or that everyone else is better than you. You know what I mean? Like, again, when I started on Instagram, I, I was like the first graffiti Instagram person for New York anyways. And yeah, no, I know people yeah. might read that as being like, you know, boastful or whatever, but you know, it was a matter of like, everybody was on Flickr and I just decided to get on Instagram because I was single and somebody told me I could meet girls there. So after a while, I just started putting all my Flickr photos on Instagram and then all of the Flickr photographers, which I respect to this day because their skills at photography are far better, their equipment is far better. They might have better like, you know, network of writers that they want to work with, but realistically like there is value in 
being the first person to set up the lemonade stand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like you said, the skill of observation. There's just, like you said, it's being the first person. You can observe it in, any, in anything uh, when you're the first person. Eventually it takes time, but you have a large, you have a big upper hand on those who come later down. Yeah, for you've sure. You've just been there for longer. Even if yeah. they're better than you, you've just been there for longer. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things too where like I, I, part of the reason too, I do like the, like the 90% of my content is all old. It's all from 2000, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. It might be like the best stuff from that era, but at the same time, it's a matter of like, recognizing and being okay with the fact that like my time is already over you know what I mean so how can I repackage this and how can I uh bring a new new value to this that other people also find you know worthwhile because there are kids that are on TikTok I'm sure or that are on Snapchat that are like the graffiti god of Snapchat or the graffiti god of TikTok and that me, I'm too old for that. But at the same time, you know, I, I wish those people all the best of luck. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask exactly about that. Like, what are your thoughts on, cause there's a lot of accounts now that do that. They just go around, they take pictures of um, New York city graffiti. I was wondering if you keep up with that. Like, do you, um, do you still have an interest in the scene of what's going on? I do. It's, it's, it's hard for me sometimes um, because, you know, I think when, before like fresh paint got to be as have as many followers as he did or carnage started doing his thing with scenes and both are people that like you know when i was living in new york i would have considered them friends not that we aren't anymore it's just we live on opposite coasts but like i still have respect for what those guys do i still have respect for you know uh people that have lesser followings that still are doing their thing like luna park and you know, um, I guess the hard thing is, is that when a lot of the newer generation was coming onto Instagram, like I had a target on my back. And so it was about competition. And, um, you know, I think that that makes it hard for me to like, look at newer feeds from the standpoint of like, this is somebody who is a person that I might get along with, you know what I mean? It's more about like, oh, this person was like, I don't know, critical when they first came because they were jealous or something. You know what I mean? Um, what made you, this is one of my, we're closing off, but what made you want to move from New York back to Seattle, it seems permanently or for a long uh, period of time? So, you know, it was a lot of things. I think I... I lost uh, a girl that I was like, my heart was heavily invested in, uh, which then led me to, <laughs> to turn into, um, you know, returning to seeking out substances as a coping mechanism. Uh, that led me to end up losing a great job in New York. And so things, you know, as is common with people that use drugs started to fall apart. Um, I was also like, you know, stepping down off of Suboxone, which increased like the level of depression I was feeling. So I was absolutely having trouble making rent and paying for medication and psych visits. Um, And it just got to the point where like, you know, trying to do that really seemed like a lot of diminishing returns. Uh, So I just, I decided to come back home, try to recoup and then 
make a plan to return, uh, you know, from a position of strength. So you do make a plan to return to New York? I do. I think that, you know, and there are certain goals that might not necessarily be like, uh, I want to be a professional Instagram photographer or, you know, do a printed quarterly magazine that allows me to, you know, pay for my living. But um, I do intend to work on the craft of writing. And uh, I dropped out of NYU with two and a half years of credit. So it would be, you know, uh, I think a really nice redemption story to go back there and, and complete. Well, if you do write a book, I'm definitely, I'm definitely buying it. hundred percent. Um, I actually want, well, I'm going to DM you in private cause I want to know some books that you suggest that I read. I'll give you some topics that I'm, that I'm hyped on. Um, and then lastly, I wanted to finish it off unless you guys send more. So I wanted to finish it off with this quote. Um, so Jaws and easy commented on your gram and they said, glad you're back. Stay strong and stay alert in the direction that this world is currently going. It's going to be hell on earth very soon. And you responded saying, according to the famous Asimov prediction, at current rates of consumption, we will exhaust the planet's natural resources by 2060. That's it. So let me correct that because I, I wrote that and I was like, oh, I'm going to edit this because it's wrong. But I was like looking at an Isaac Asimov book at the time. And it was actually Isaac Newton that predicted that, which mm. is like even more impressive because that's that, crazy. He, he did that like 500 years ago. But, you know, there Time are travel. Yeah, yeah right. There Some are tons of, those... of like, you know, well-respected scientists that continue to like revisit his prediction and calculate it like every four or five years. And it still is like stunningly accurate. So. It's a different breed of humans that exist on this planet who can do it. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, they have like access to something we don't, which is a time machine. <laughs> yeah, probably. Or maybe they've got that Soma. Oh, yeah, the Soma, Soma Ross. You're talking about uh, Soma as in like the heavenly drink? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Um, that's why I think books are so cool because, you know, I think that's something that's – I've always thought this. I think it's something that's very um, taken for granted because – say that they didn't exist, not a single book existed. And, but we knew of events that have happened in the past or uh, very crazy historical figures or something like that, or like enlightened, enlightened beings or anything like that. Say that no books exist and you're walking down the street and you find like a manuscript that this person wrote. Maybe it's kind of edited for modern times, but you found it. You'd probably read it right away because you would be in disbelief that such a thing exists. Like, what I can read, the words that they said, I can like take a part in the life that they've lived. I can have a very one-sided conversation with them or maybe like a, get a discourse directly from them. That's, that's insanity. And it's, we're so used to it that it's not a big deal anymore. There's like samurais that have existed that have written manuscripts of the way you should live your life. They, they wrote it and it's here and like we don't even read them or we have like <laughs> or if like even the diary of Anne Frank, like people like in school might be like, oh my God, I have to read this. Uh, what a chore. And it's like, but if you found this, if you found this and it wasn't already public to the masses, you'd be like, yo, this girl hid in this thing for mad long for, I think it was three years, something like that. And I just found this. I should probably read the entire thing, you know, and no one does not nobody, but the, the average person, the majority of people don't because it's common and we have cell phones. Now we have YouTube and I understand it, but it's just kind of, like I said, it's taken for granted. We well, had, yeah. I mean, the mystery, right? You have like a book and when you look at it, it's just a cover, some 
letters on the spine, a back cover. There's so much in there. You know what I mean? It, it what's in there. I mean, you're going to have to read it to find out. And once you do, you know what I mean? It's probably going to teach you something ideally. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's really, it, it's not, again, don't, ju- don't judge a book by its cover. It's yeah. corny, but it's true. With that being said, thank you so much for um, being willing to talk to us. Yes. Thank you so much. It was very interesting. Yeah. And yeah, yeah we're man. really looking forward to knowing about those books that you suggest. Like right now, I'm, um, I'm very interested in Eastern like philosophy. So I would want to know what kind of suggestions you have. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, tons. I actually, part of my, you know, sobriety experience was uh, spending some time at a Tibetan monastery. So I got to actually like learn from the head of the lamas at the Tibetan monastery, which was a really unique experience too. So well, I've, we can, des- <laughs> I, I've decided that within within the next like five to 10 years, it's just a matter of financial, but within the next five to 10 years, I will a hundred percent, 100% be going to some rowdy country and living as like a total celibate monk for at least a good three months. So like for my mental experience, like no phone, like no temperature regulation, no nothing. I'm just going to do that. hundred percent. I'm doing it. Yeah. Thailand is at the top of the list. There's a local writer and not to continue our conversation even further, but you can edit all this out if you want to, but there's a local writer who, you know, um, is well known in, in the city of Seattle scene who is now actually a practicing monk. I think he lives in India. Um, but his Instagram, which is weird, is like all about his life as a monk. Yo, it's what's his, what's his Instagram? Oh man, I, I don't know if I can find it, but I send me a DM and I will send it to you. All right, cool. All right, cool. Um, yeah, man. Thank you for, thank you for coming on the show. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, me too. Thank you uh, for letting me talk for five minutes about graph and the rest about uh, <laughs> drugs and everything else. Yeah, for sure, bro. Peace, peace. <laughs> peace, take care. Later.